So we wanted to try to introduce how you would evaluate a patient and not look at the pathoanatomics. And the uh, patients in this case report, all four of them um, did have pathoanatomic diagnoses, um, but all of them were actually mechanical derangements of either the foot or the spine that did not match their medical diagnosis. Welcome to PT Pro Talk Podcast. I am Mariana Tondo, your host for today. In this episode, Dr. Lindsay Carlton is going to talk about her study, the application of mechanical diagnosis and therapy to the ankle foot complex, aka series. The paper was published in the Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy in 2018. Dr. Carlton is a physical therapist and holds a diploma in mechanical diagnosis and therapy MDT. She also published in the application of MDT in the wrist and after fail cervical fusion and disectomy. I hope you enjoyed the show. PT Pro Talk Podcast, the fastest way to increase your knowledge with the brightest minds of physical therapy in your pocket. Give your clinic admins and therapists the tools they will need to excel. Give them systems built for therapists with their patients in mind. Systems for Physical Therapists, the only EMR with a dedicated members network. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? Good, good. I'm glad we finally make this work. We had some technical difficulties, <laughs> but now it's working. So I'm happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and how did you get to where you are right now? Yeah, so my background is actually in athletic training. I started with that uh, back in 2012 and realized I wanted to do a little bit more, but wasn't sure exactly what that was. <laughs> so I went into PT school. And while I was there, um, Joe Massio um, Sr. actually came to our school to do a lecture about the McKenzie Method. And I was intrigued about the outcomes that he was talking about. And he shared a lot of his patient success stories during his lecture. And I realized those same success stories weren't what I was hearing from other sorts of uh, treatment methods. So I felt like I needed to explore that further. Um, I did my third clinical rotation um, at their clinic under um, Joe Jr., his son, and uh, haven't left since. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, so... Tell us a little bit about the paper that um, you and, and Joe and both Joes and a few more people wrote. <laughs> yes. <them. laughs> yes, we had quite the team working on this. Yeah. Um, so it started actually as just a case report. Um, we presented the first case in the paper um, at the uh, Miami MDT conference uh, back in 2016 or 17, I think. Um, and we just did a simple poster presentation, but wrote it up with a, uh, as we would have a regular case report. And we realized we had a lot of positive feedback when we met with our peers and they had a lot of questions um, about our loading strategies and how'd you get to that. And that was also when we started to realize there was a lot of gaps in the MDT literature. There was certainly big systematic reviews, but not a lot of the case reports or case series where you really get to talk about the more nitty-gritty clinical pieces and kind of explain your thought process. Um, so that's where we saw a need and we, we went with it. Um, unfortunately, a lot of journals aren't really accepting case reports. 
they're looking more for case series um, unless they're specializing in case reports. Um, so that prompted us to find more patients with foot and ankle problems um, that we could incorporate. And we chose not to use uh, consecutive patients to try to get a better um, idea of the types of patients we could have. So we, we did self-select these four patients, but we felt like they were of uh, positive uh, information for the ankle. Awesome. So just for the audience that we are talking about the paper, the name is the application of mechanical diagnosis and therapy to the ankle food complex, a case series. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the paper and, and just give us the background and a little more, few more details. Yeah. Um, so we noticed as we were trying to research and just come up with our background and introduction to the paper, that a lot of the clinical practice guidelines are pathoanatomical based. So your diagnosis then becomes very pathoanatomic. Um, but the treatments don't always need to be that way, especially through the MDT process. So we wanted to try to introduce how you would evaluate a patient and not look at the pathoanatomics. And the uh, patients in this case report, all four of them um, did have pathoanatomic diagnoses. Um, but all of them were actually mechanical derangements of either the foot or the spine that did not match their medical diagnosis. That's very interesting, and I think that's very common. So it's nice to talk about because sometimes people tend to just get stuck to the diagnosis and not think about the, the person as a whole and investigate to see really what's going on. So I think that's pretty cool. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you had four patients. Um, do you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about them? Yeah, we'll go one by one. Um, so the first patient um, was a 49-year-old female. Um, she had intermittent uh, pain on the lateral aspect of her ankle. And it wasn't there all the time. And she didn't have any pain at rest. Um, she didn't have any paresthesia either. Um, and the symptoms began 14 days prior um, after landing incorrectly uh, during a high-impact workout. Um, she was highly active, training for a half marathon at the time, um, and did a lot of hit high-intensity type uh, workouts. And she tried to rest it a little bit and took some time to ice it and just stay off the foot, and uh, it wasn't getting any better, and it was just starting to hinder her ability to train for a half marathon, which she was not happy about. Um, we had seen her for several other conditions in the past, um, so she knew that she needed to just come and see us without a referral over in New York, so we have direct access. Um, so she self-referred herself without a diagnosis, but it was her understanding that she thought she had sprained her ankle. Okay. And then what was the first thing that you tried? Or um, yeah. So during during the evaluation, we set some baselines of her uh, range of motion. Um, so there was range of motion uh, loss. Uh, we used minimal, moderate, and major losses uh, such that's used in the MDT system. Um, so she had a minimal loss of dorsiflexion and plantar flexion um, and a moderate loss of inversion of the ankle, which elicited a very sharp pain and also a scream from the patient. <laughs> Um, her manual muscle testing, though, was within normal limits, so she didn't have any strength deficits, um, although eversion was a little bit weak and painful, but um, it wasn't actually uh, measured as a 
manual muscle test at that time because um, the pain was what seemed to uh, make that weak. Um, we actually started with loaded ankle dorsiflexion. So we had the patient place her foot on a chair and then lunged uh, forward so that her shin moved towards her toes. Um, and that initially did um, increase her dorsiflexion a little bit. Um, so we did suspect a derangement because we did see a rapid immediate change. Um, but all of her other concordance, the, the weakness and the uh, pain with the inversion uh, were unchanged. Um, just as in the spine, we sometimes like to explore the sagittal plane movements a little bit more before jumping into the lateral plane. Um, so loaded uh, plantar flexion was assessed, um, which just became more painful the more repetition she did. Um, so we didn't even go to retest her baselines because she was just getting more uncomfortable with that. Um, that then prompted us that to um, test a little bit into the lateral plane. So we combined the dorsiflexion, which did have a slight improvement in her symptom, with um, some ankle eversion, which we did by having her place her foot on a wedge. Um, we actually used the OPTP wedges um, and uh, had her dorsiflex while her foot was on the wedge. And that had a significant improvement. And that was what we sent her home with um, after the initial evaluation. So that was a load strategy that I thought was very interesting um, that I wouldn't think about. So that's why I think it's cool to talk about these cases, give us new ideas. So I was looking at the pictures on the, on the case series and I was like, that's really interesting. I never thought about combining both forces this way. So it just give us a few more ideas of loads to try. So I think that was really interesting. Yeah, and we've not in this case report, but we've sometimes used those purely just doing eversion or just doing inversion um, or also doing them in a combined manner, um, similar to either doing press-ups or hips off center or just side gliding. Um, so we're really, we've seemed to do really well in the extremities if we stick to the basic concepts and then kind of, go from there <laughs> yeah because we are more familiar with all the different loads on the spine but then extremities um we don't have as much um papers uh published and all these different loads that people are trying so i feel like it's very interesting that strategy um so tell us then what happened after you sent her home doing the darcy flexion with the version um so she did well with that and then after on the third visit, we seemed like we somewhat plateaued a little bit, um, and she still had um, she still had some discomfort with the uh, inversion, um, but it wasn't getting any further better with her current loading strategy. So we returned her back to just straight dorsiflexion um, into the sagittal plane, similar to as what you would do in the spine. If you've gone lateral, you need to get yourself back into the sagittal plane. That's not always as hard and true in the extremities from what we've seen um, anecdotally, um, but it was the case in here. And when we returned her back to just pure dorsiflexion um, that uh, abolished the remaining symptoms and we followed up with her at one, six and 12 months. Um, and at each point she had remained uh, asymptomatic and at the one year follow-up, she had actually ended up completing a marathon, but at the start of the treatment, she was training for a half marathon. So she was able to self-progress her training um, without any recurrence. That's awesome. So she just is staying doing loaded flexion. She just need the lateral 
component of the, the, the load strategies and then she did well just staying sagittal. Yes, correct. Very nice. Okay. And then let's jump to the second one. Yeah. So the second uh, case uh, was, uh, the first case was treated uh, by Joe Jr. as a diplomat. The second case um, was treated by his father, who's also a diplomat. Um, it was a, a 77-year-old female, and she was referred from her rheumatologist with a diagnosis of posterior tibialis tendinitis. Um, and it was not constant either. Um, it didn't affect, uh, it only affected about 75 to 100% of her day, um, but less than 100%. And it started about four weeks ago for no reason. Um, and her main form of exercise was walking, especially on a treadmill. Uh, which she was not able to do because of the pain. Um, she didn't have any paresthesia and she didn't have any pain at rest either. Um, so with this particular patient, um, her range of motion was actually uh, pretty well. Um, there was tenderness to palpation around the area of the posterior tibialis tendon, and there was about a quarter inch swelling noted uh, with a girth measurement um, performed at the distal lower leg. Um, and there was, there was pain, however, though, with active dorsiflexion, but her range of motion was uh, within normal limits and the same as the other side. Um, we had first looked at loaded ankle dorsiflexion, as I had described previously, and that, uh, had no effect on her ability to actively dorsiflex. That was still painful. Um, so staying in the sagittal plane. Um, the therapist looked at loaded plantar flexion, which is done uh, in a quadruped position or in a kneeling position, sitting back onto the foot, uh, trying to plantar flex as much as you can. And uh, that significantly de decreased her pain with palpation, um, as well as the pain with the active uh, dorsiflexion. So that was what she was sent home with on the first visit. Okay. And then how, how did she come back? <laughs> course. <laughs> um, 48 hours later, um, she reported localization of symptoms. Um, so in the extremity, we don't see centralization, but rather um, a localization of pain. So we did, uh, we were able to confirm a derangement at that point since we did see that localization, but she still had pain with the active dorsiflexion. And we really pushed the plantar flexion, looked at different ways to really make sure we we're reaching end range with that. Um, and it still was doing uh, nothing to her ability to uh, actively dorsiflex. Uh, the therapist then looked at loaded eversion, uh, which again was performed on the wedge, um, just having the patient place her foot on the wedge and then loading onto it and then off of it. So it would place her foot into an everted position. And that uh, was, had a very positive response. Uh, her, she was able to uh, actively dorsiflex with less pain, not abolish. And uh, the point tenderness was also decreased. Um, but given the uh, change with that, she was sent home with a wedge and was instructed to uh, continue with that. And that ended up being her final loading strategy. There were no further changes. Um, we did keep her for another couple of visits beyond that, despite her derangement being reduced, because she had not resumed her full walking program. Um, and we felt like we needed to help her along with that. Whereas in the first patient, um, she was pretty well-versed in running and training and felt like she could progress herself through that. Um, so there were a couple extra visits. We saw her for a total of six visits in this case, 
Um, and those last couple were just to help her progress her walking program to make sure her function got back to where it was before. Okay, so just loaded aversion. Uh, it was the what abolished her pain and she was able to stay well just doing that strategy. Very nice. Yep. That's and another that's another yeah. thing that was interesting, like the low with the picture. That was a good Yeah. And uh we followed up with this particular patient four months later and she had no recurrence and didn't even feel like she needed to continue with the loading strategy. Um so had had discontinued but had been able to continue with her walking asymptomatically. Awesome. Very cool. Okay. That's another thing that people can just check it out on the paper. There are some pictures so you can visualize how they did the, the loading strategies. Um, the third case we included um, was a, another therapist in the clinic working with us who at the time had only taken part A and B. Um, she's currently now certified, but at the time of treatment, she was not. Um, and we thought that that would help increase the generalizability of the study and show that Again, the principles that we're using here are those that are developed in even the A and B courses um, that are looking more at the lumbar spine and cervical spine. So using the core principles of the MDT method um, will definitely strengthen your extremity assessment. Um, so this was a 66-year-old patient who was referred by an orthopedic physician assistant, and her medical diagnosis at the time was a plantar fasciitis. Um, she presented with a right heel pain that was intermittent and affecting less than 100% of her day and started two weeks ago for no reason. Um, her biggest complaint was pain weight-bearing and walking, um, as well as standing and doing stairs, and she was a primary caregiver for her daughter. Um, so it was very important that she continued to be mobile, which she could not at the time. Um, the patient did have a moderate loss of ankle dorsiflexion and minimal loss with plantar flexion, inversion, and eversion. And she had about four out of five strength uh, during manual, manual muscle testing uh, with all directions. Um, the therapist first started with repeated loaded ankle dorsiflexion, as I described before, with the foot on the chair. And there's end range pain that was produced, but it was no worse. Um, so that indicated that it was a safe maneuver. And after doing that, um, the dorsiflexion range of motion improved um, and she reported uh, no pain with standing. So she was sent home with that as her primary loading strategy. Um, she was seen right before the weekend. So we ended up reassessing her four days later, which is a little bit longer than we typically like to do um, after our evaluations. We like to try to do that in 24 to 48 hours. Um, but she did come back saying that she was able to consistently abolish her symptoms and she could walk about 50 feet and then her symptoms would return again. Um, so typically, same thing in the spine. If you have a positive response that, that that is not lasting, you want to potentially increase your forces. Um, so that's what was applied here in the ankle. Um, so we utilized uh, ankle dorsiflexion mobilization um, that many people are familiar with. Um, it was described in Collins et al., um, as well, but it's simply with a belt around the ankle and you're mobilizing through the malleoli and the talus while the patient is dorsiflexioning, uh, uh, similar to like a mobilization with movement technique. Um, and this allowed her to walk 100 feet with uh, very little symptoms. Um, so we knew she needed to increase force, but it still wasn't abolishing her symptoms. 
So the therapist put a rolled towel under the heads of the metatarsals and then had the patient dorsiflex over the towel um, to further increase force. And she was able to walk without any pain. Um, And so that was her home exercise. And that ended up being her final loading strategy as well. Um, However, we did keep her for uh, a few more visits after that. Again, saw her for a total of six visits um, to work on balance and reduce her falls risk, um, which she was at uh, before. um, And she was discharged above the falls risk, according to her Berg. Awesome. And that's, again, another uh, loading strategy that we can progress with the roll towel, um, which is give you more pressure on, on large flexion. So that's also interesting. And think about the, the technique with the mobilization with movement. That's also a good tip and good strategy to try to progress force. So, okay, very interesting. Um, last one. Yes. So this one's probably my favorite one. <laughs> um, this one, um, was also treated by uh, Joe Jr. So a diplomat of the McKenzie method. And it was a 72 year old female, uh, who was referred, uh, to us by her podiatrist with a medical diagnosis of right second metatarsophalangeal joint pain and edema. Um, he, the podiatrist had given her a mesh post-op shoe to ambulate with. She didn't have surgery. They just wanted her to offload the foot. Utilizing that, um, her pain was not constant, but there was pain at rest. um, And it had commenced three weeks prior uh, without apparent reason. Um, And it was worse with any weight-bearing walking or standing activities. She was a previous patient at our office and did have a previous lumbar spine derangement. So given the pain at rest and a little more consistency of symptoms, although they were intermittent, um, Joe performed a spinal assessment. Um, There was a moderate loss of lumbar extension noted during her evaluation, but there was also moderate loss of all ankle movements too. But again, given her history and the loss in the lumbar spine, um, he did perform a lumbar extension and standing. um, And after 15 repetitions, um, her pain abolished with ambulation. Um, so we sent her home with uh, that as well as utilizing her lumbar roll when she was sitting. And when she returned, she did well um, with that loading strategy. Um, on the third visit, she reported that she was about 30% improved. Um, she had stopped using the, the walking shoe. So we did take that as a sign of progress. And although she was only 30% improved, there was functional progress. So we left her loading strategy the same and told her to continue with her lumbar extensions. Um, she then came back on the next session saying she was 60% improved. She no longer had foot pain, but now she was reporting right hip pain. So that did indicate centralization for us. Um, but the lumbar extension was no longer affecting the hip pain. Um, the more we did, it just was staying the same. Um, so we therefore looked at some lateral forces, um, and after right side gliding, um, there is positive effects. So she, uh, with reduction in hip pain, um, so she was sent home with uh, side gliding, um, and that remained that way, uh, for visitor two. And then she reported she was 70% better, um, on her return and 
because she was only 70% and we did have a need for a lateral, we did keep her lateral for another visit with side gliding. And then uh, in the next uh, visit or two, she was returned back to her sagittal plane extensions and ultimately went through uh, bending and recovery of function and getting back to our walking program as well. Um, so that was all completed over eight visits, uh, but it was over a 33-day period because we did spread things out a little bit when we were just having her perform lateral techniques, knowing that we weren't going to make a drastic change with her treatment. And the side gliding was standing up against the wall? Yes. Okay. Interesting. And then when that plateau, then you went back to the sagittal? Um. We had her do that for an extra another week when it did plateau at about seventy percent, and then we, um, after that, she returned back to sagittal plane and then recovery of function. Awesome, and then the sagittal plane abolished the the pain centralized, mm -hmm. and then she and paid the, well. Yeah, and this one's really interesting. Again, it's it's my favorite of all four of them probably because she had no indication of it being a lumbar problem. Um, aside from the fact that possibly having pain at rest, um, given what we found in some of our other studies looking at spinal versus extremity stuff, um, in both uh, Joe Jr.'s smaller report and also the XBOS study. Um, but otherwise, her pain was intermittent. It was isolated to a joint. Um, and somebody perhaps not well-versed in MDT wouldn't even consider possibly looking at the lumbar spine. And in all of these cases, again, if we just look only at the diagnosis and focus in on the ankle sprain or on the foot or on the toe and never look at the larger picture, um, some of these loading strategies may not have been identified. Yes. And she didn't, she didn't complain about back pain, correct? No, we only did it based on her previous history. Um, so even if she had said, no, my back's fine, and we decided we don't need to do that and skipped over it, we would have missed it too. So the, the biggest thing I've learned through my MDT assessment is don't make assumptions until you've done it. Um, as a younger clinician, there were several times where I wouldn't flex the patient. Um, and I was always told, why wouldn't you? And I'm like, well, maybe. And they're like, no, 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 stop assuming, do it, and then figure out whether it was right or wrong or what effect you had. Um, so always making the patient go through the test maneuvers um, will give you the answers and guide your treatment. Yeah. And what I think it's crazy that in this case, it was the metatarsophalangeal joint. And we think that it's very localized, the pain. And it's crazy to think that it's from the back. So yeah, I think and it's that's almost all... the furthest point away you could get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. And we're not like very clear signs of, of coming from becoming from the back. So just again, how important it is to clear the spine always first and always. kind of go go from there. And what I think is interesting on the third case, when you're describing the plantar fasciitis, oh my gosh, I have problems with this word, fasciitis. How do you say it? Fasciitis. Fasciitis. So the, the, the medical diagnosis of plantar fasciitis, um, I think it's crazy that they also like responded with like ankle movements because sometimes you just think it's very localizing the tissue the problem and we forget sometimes to try this movement so uh the pain with the weight bearing and all of that we feel like yeah that's characteristic of plantar fasciitis uh, i don't know if this one was especially in the morning i remember that i read yeah 
in the morning hours. So initial few steps right after, like after rising in the morning hours. So that would make me think, yeah, maybe it is plantar fasciitis. And then it responds to ankle movement. So I think that's so interesting. And sometimes we are, um, that's like a newer concept of the extremities. And sometimes you just feel like, yeah, maybe plantar fasciitis, maybe in the tissue. And um, don't think as much of testing the, the joint. So I think that was very interesting. Um, anything else that you want to add about these cases or the discussion? Anything that you think is interesting that you want to point out? Um, well, one interesting thing um, that we made in our discussion of, of this was if we were to have followed, if we had placed the patients into their clinical prediction groups, um, there is a very large paper on plantar fasciitis, for instance, um, they would have been performing exercises that actually made them worse or had no effect. Um, same with the patient with the posterior tibialis, and um, she progressively got worse when we were loading her in a particular direction. If that had been an exercise that we had given her, say, with TheraBand resisting in all four directions, um, we would have potentially had the ability to worsen her through the exercise and may not have really noted that. Um, I've worked with several patients who have gone through therapies with, for other conditions or have come to our clinic looking for the MDT specialty. Um, after not doing well under different types of care. Um, and they were given so many different exercises and they didn't, couldn't even tell me which one made it worse. Um, but they just knew that they weren't better. Um, and I think if we're not looking for a directional preference, not everybody is a derangement. That's the other thing too. We all write about the case reports and case series where everybody magically gets better in five or six visits. Um, but you first need to assess to see if they are a derangement, because if they are, they need the proper loading strategies, and you can't start working on strengthening or balance or anything else until they've been reduced. Just like with a lumbar patient, if you're still working on the reduction phase, you can't have them working on getting doing planks and getting strength if they haven't gone through the recovery process yet. Um, so I think a lot of times we see a diagnosis, we know that it's an ankle sprain, or we think we know it's an ankle sprain, so we start to work on ice and edema and pain management, and then we start to do four-way resistive bands and balance exercises and single leg stance on foam without ever seeing if there is actually a derangement present. Um, with this patient, if we assessed her and she wasn't a derangement, then yeah, we need to treat her as how she is presenting into one of the other categories. Um, but if they are presenting as a derangement, they need to be treated as such. Yes, that's a good point. And... It's not the same treatment for everybody that we see like the same kind of recipe for yes. everybody, mobility, far away and all this stuff yeah. that sometimes you don't and stop. To I, I find about. that happens. We see a lot of extremities at our clinic and we're, we're well known for that in the area. And we always have people, you know, what would you do for this? What would you do for this? You got to go back to the principles as much as I would love to just send out every exercise and every loading strategy I've ever done. If we do that, then nobody's going to be critical of their assessment process and try to figure out, do I need to be in the sagittal plane? Do I need to go lateral? Do I need to get back to the sagittal plane? And keeping it to the principles of the MDT system will get you there. But you got to follow the principles. <laughs> yep. Good point. Um, okay, so let's transition to our final questions. Um, 
What are your favorite resources resources of information? Do you have anything in particular that you like? Um, I am a big research junkie, and I will read anything and everything I can get my hands on. <laughs> um, in terms of information for the MD2 world, um, what has been put together by the education committee on the MD2 website um, and our resource page and our core reference page is a great place to start. Um, it can be very daunting for a lot of people to read through articles. Um, I love it, but I'm kind of a nerd like that. Um, but on the MDT website, a lot of other clinicians um, have already done the work for you. They've read through it. They give you the points. Many of the most important research um, that they have listed um, has a paragraph synopsis written by another clinician. Um, to explain what happened in the paper and also how you can use it in the clinic and the utility of the paper. And I think that's key, especially for somebody who's short on time. You might not be able to sit there and read five papers, but you could read five paragraphs about five different papers and gain the knowledge very quickly. Um, and they're in the process of trying to create that for every paper that's on there, um, but it is certainly a work in progress. That's awesome. That makes our life easier sometimes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, people don't have time. Um, Good. And then uh, what would be the best advice you could give to a clinician that is starting um, their careers? Be very critical of everything <laughs> um, and get out there. What, they, what you get as your base learning in PT school is not enough to learn how to perform a proper assessment and classify a patient. Um, whether that's using MDT or one of the other classification systems out there, learning a system well and following it strictly will help you get to the outcome you're looking for. Um, but if you don't have a guide, whether that be a classification system or something else, and you just walk into an eval and hope the patient's going to tell you what makes them better, you're going to struggle a little bit. <laughs> um, so getting yourself into a system so that you know what questions you're going to ask the patient, patient and why you're going to ask that. And when you ask that, what information is that leading to your exam um, is, the, is the biggest thing. And I found that all those points are hit with MDT, um, but there are other classification systems out there. So I encourage anybody to find a system that fits them and stick with it rather than trying one movement, thinking it didn't work, and then abandoning the system, because um, then you start to just grab at straws, hoping something sticks. Mm -hmm. Have some structure that you can follow. Yes, Help you structure is key. You. Yeah. <laughs> and what personal qualities and abilities that you feel that are important to become a successful physical therapist? Um, I think being critical, um, being critical of the diagnosis that's coming through the door, um, being critical of what the patient is reporting to you, being critical of the research, um, just being critical in general, not taking anything for what it's worth when it's written. Again, all of these patients had medical diagnoses, and if we just accepted that and weren't critical of it and challenging it, um, again, I don't think any of them would have gotten the as quick results as, as we saw with these. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lindsay, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your paper with us, uh, with all these insights and tips. Um, that's very helpful, very practical, helps us um, when you're going to treat patients. So I appreciate that. Um, 
And if people uh, have any questions or they want to contact you, is there a way that they can reach out? Um, yeah, they can certainly reach out to me. Um, my email is, is in the paper, but it's my name, Lindsay Carlton 1515 at gmail.com. Okay, perfect. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Questions, suggestions, or topics you want to hear about, talk to me on ptprotalk.com. Join our email list to receive updates and new episodes and subscribe here. Tell your friends about it and be sure to share. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We are going to publish today's video recording on my YouTube channel, so you can check the link out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time. <music>